Welcome to A New and Ancient Story, a show dedicated to the transformation of self and society. We're moving from the story of separation to a new story of interbeing. We explore it all, technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, because the changes that are gathering today will leave no aspect of our world untouched. For deeper engagement with these ideas, join our community at newandancientstory.net. The way you phrased it, that you're not actually giving the name, you're yeah, perceiving what the you're name recognizing is. Uh, and that's also, uh, that's, that's grounded in a worldview that's not anthropocentric, because in the anthropocentric worldview, human beings are the sole creators of meaning mm, there we are. in the world. Mm-hmm. And end of story, right. and that's the postmodern view that that um, that all um, yeah that that we are the source of of the stories in the world, and that that in a sense what we call reality is in fact just our story, and it's our story. And so, so the world out at large, or the world we experience with our animal senses, is ja- basically doesn't have any meaning. It's meaningless until meaningless. we choose right. to give it right. meaning. It's just right. to be mined and exploited. So, and mm-hmm. so, so if you, I mean, this is related to, even to like things like intellectual property. You know, where where the foundation of intellectual property is well. I created that idea. I created that story. You know, I created that song. When I look, when I look, honestly, you know, ask where did I get that? Like, I didn't create it. Um, I either, you know, it came to me, or I pieced it together from conversations that I had. Um, but, and I, I believe I've been told that. Um, when asked where where is the origin of your stories and your songs when that indigenous people will usually say that they were given to us here we have a couple of indigenous people I'm curious maybe I'll ask you right now um, <laughs> where did you get your where did you get your but like when I yeah yeah where did you get your songs where did you get your stories where do they come from anyway when did you make those up? <laughs> they all come from Creator. I'm just the lucky person who he gave it to. <coughs> he, she, it. Ah. <laughs> they. Thanks. They. Because we're, in, I mean, we're all indigenous. If we're going to talk, yeah, I, I, I can't take one more exclusion. I mean, my heart has been broken so much by exclusion. Mm. I can't take one more exclusion. I, I mean, I bow deeply to you yeah. for being your guest on the land that yeah. you are indigenous from, but I'm indigenous from yes, you this mm-hmm. And perhaps what Charles meant was uninterrupted cultures. Mm. I can... I can really what I really mean, actually, I mean, I've thought about the word indigenous, you know, and how it is used... Ex- in an exclusionary way. Um, I mean, really, the word the word means, I guess, of the land. And I think, therefore, if someone becomes um, intimately in relationship to land, then they become indigenous. They become of the land. But when someone is, when the relationship to the land is truncated, abstracted, mediated, um, when you know, you look outside the window and you don't even know the name of more than three trees or three birds where you where you hear a bird song and you don't know what the bird looked like that sang that song. When you see it, a plant and you don't know what it smells like when you pick it up or what medicine it's used for. When you don't know what soil is where and you don't know the stories behind the landforms, behind the, the streams and the hills and you don't know their names, and what happened there a generation or two ago, then you're not really of that place anymore. You're not indigenous. 
So part of that embedding in relationship, what, what comes from that, I find, is a kind of humility. Because you're more aware of the relationships of giving and receiving that pervade all of life. But when you cease being indigenous and there's that veil of separation between self and all of these other than human beings around, then we begin to see them through the lens of commodity and resource, natural resources. And there's no relationship anymore, or it's a very um, abusive relationship. And so I, mean, I don't think that, that, you know, someone with, you know, more pigment in their skin or, you know, DNA from that has been on this continent for longer is necessarily more indigenous. But perhaps what happens is that the, like having something to go back to, is, as was that David, were you saying that? Like having, this David was saying that, um, there's still a living memory, perhaps, and, and cultural forms and traditions that were grounded in those relationships. And so they're not so far away. Um, they have, there's still a, a, an unbroken line. Um, cause this is a real question, like, in the absence of that, question. of that lineage, of that, that connects us to the vestiges of our indigeneity, when that's been totally truncated, how do we get it back? That's a question. This is what Stephen Jenkinson's work that, is about. That's the, the root school of, of orphan wisdom. He calls it the school of orphan wisdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. How do you get it back? Mm-hmm. And maybe this is that that the theme that I wrote that parable, the three seeds about. You know, maybe the only way to get it back is with the assistance of those who didn't quite completely lose it, mm-hmm. even under the hammer blows of colonialism. Like the ones who survived the genocide, because my people did not survive the genocide, mm-hmm. the culture side. Mm-hmm. Our indigeneity was erased, so that I look out the window, and I can't name. Well, I've recovered a little bit of it, but still, like mm-hmm. my intimacy with my natural surroundings is very thin. Mm-hmm. Your conscious intimacy with your natural surroundings, and yet you're still breathing. And your heart is still beating. And do you imagine that it would be still beating if it was not constantly and continuously being nourished by that rapport between your body and the ground? And so I fully honor what you're saying, and I hear what's also being spoken here, which is that if we, we we don't have a hoot of a chance of... uh, returning and learning from those who still carry that wisdom if we think that we are no longer um, indigenous or that that is not our birthright because it's it's all of our birthright and yes there are there are some thank heavens thank the earth some people's who still know how to walk mm-hmm. and carry it and can and can offer clues and teachings and insight. But at the same time, it seems we can't say we're no longer indigenous because I, my heart wouldn't be beating, if that makes sense. Can we find another word for immigrant? Tourist. <laughs> David, you're, David Bacon, you're going to tell the story. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kathy and Marion, Kathy Sanchez and Marion Naranjo were meeting with Los Alamos a lot, with the DOE and stuff, and that wasn't going very well, because it's pretty obvious. And at one point, things were getting pretty tense. And that was the first time Kathy just broke out the smudge stick and went around and smudged everyone. And Marion talks about the scientists kind of going like, like really getting uptight. And then, but it cleared, it cleared the air. They could get back to, to discussion. 
And then they started bringing sacred water and sacred things and putting them in the center of the table and had people put their breath of life on them. And she said some of the scientists just couldn't do it, but some could, you know. And then they they would thank Marion after the thing, like, thanks for doing that, you know. And it was this beautiful thing, and it, it the most beautiful thing was watching Marion imitate the scientists who were getting really uptight about all this. But it, it's now how they start all their discussions is with sacred items in the center of the table mm-hmm. that everyone gives their respect to. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's working better. It hadn't, like, completely shut down Los Alamos, but it is, there is now respect mm-hmm. because they could at least anchor it in those things. So I want to, can I jump in? Anybody? I've been sitting here, for some reason I'm thinking a lot about Thich Nhat Hanh tonight. And, um, How is Ty? Well, Ty, he, I'm actually going to see him this coming weekend. Oh. Not this, not this weekend, next weekend. Um, so he's in, in, um, San Francisco, uh, recovering from a serious stroke and, whether he will recover isn't really clear. I, I will know a lot more after I get back from that trip. Um, but I've been, I don't know why, uh, maybe because I'm going to see him that I'm thinking about him. And I'm, I'm reflecting too on the Vietnamese culture, the indigenous Vietnamese culture, that suffered this long war. And when Hugh and I went to Vietnam, we were invited to go there. Thich Nhat Hanh set it up for us to go. He, it was before he was able to go back. And we went to his home temple um, and we carried a handwritten manuscript of one of his books back to the temple to deliver it there. And these people that had been, that had grown up with him um, in the School for Youth for Social Service and the Early Order of Interbeing, all came, and what happened was that um, this was like a spontaneous ceremony where um, people came together, and they were very happy to be together in this way, and they um, made tea, and they poured the tea, and they were pretty quiet, you know, just being really present with the, the experience of the tea and everything like that. And and then there were, I think, probably some cookies or something like that that were passed around. And, and it all was brought. And it was all done like as if we were just in this little circle. We were in a little pagoda that was associated to the temple. And then what? after people drank the tea for a little while, then suddenly what happened was people started reciting poetry, spontaneous Poetry. Making poems. Making poems <laughs> in the moment. Sort of like, you know, songs of realization, but it was it was more down home and, and just from the heart. And 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 also, you know, incredibly insightful. Um, that culture is, you know, quite amazing in that way. Great capacity for uh, seeing. And so but it was just this, you were talking about language and you were talking about reclaiming that, you know, and so there was this, and, and if you can imagine coming out of the war and think of all the wars and all the oppression and all the things that have happened and the need to reclaim the beauty and the presence. And this was, this was the indigenous response of that land, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. May I share? Um, there's a group of um, people called the Wintu, which means people. <laughs> um, and they live in Northern California. Um, and they suffered a great amount of cultural amnesia 
where they just kind of lost a lot um, during the gold rush and the bounty hunting and all that good stuff. And um, they forgot the ceremony, which is the ceremony of birthing a, a woman. And it happens when a young woman has her first menstruation. And it's incredibly important for every human being to have this, whether you're black, white, red, or yellow. And Female or male? Yes, female or male. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they forgot how to do it. And they knew they had to bring it back. And so what they did was they summited uh, their sacred mountain, and the chief, well, she just sat there for a long time on the mountain. <laughs> and they actually gave her some songs, you know. They gave her these songs, and she brought them back down. And um, she pieced together little things. She remembered her, her, her grandmother told her a few things. They got the song. And they held the first womanhood ceremony in almost 100 years, in 2006. And to me, this is such a special story because, you know, I hear what you're saying about feeling excluded and um, how so many of our brothers and sisters who are of the Mother Earth of Europe are so without any answers or any ceremony to call their own. And I truly do believe that if we were to return to these places, and even though I'm half Navajo, I'm also half Texan, which <laughs> means a lot of things. <laughs> but one of the things it means is I'm part Scandinavian. And so <laughs> I, I have a deep love for this land of Europe. I really feel very akin to it. And I, I went to a mountain in Geneva, near Geneva, and I went up on this mountain. And I was going through a massive breakup. Oh my God. The massivest breakup ever in my life. And I laid down on the mountain and it spoke to me, you know. And this, this, this occurrence that I could be so far removed from my mountain and then go back and it mm-hmm. still speaks to me. And it says, you know what? <laughs> that person was abusing you. And this is how it abused you. Don't you understand that they were only doing this because they wanted your body? And da da da. And I was like, whoa, where is this coming from? You know? <laughs> and I went on top of this mountain and I prayed. And, you know, sometimes when I go on top of mountains, they say things. Sometimes they don't. <laughs> but <laughs> the fact is that I keep going back and praying for the people and praying for the land. And even if all I have to offer is a strand of my hair, I give it to that mountain and I reestablish that connection. So what I'm trying to say is that even though through Roman expansion there is a great deal of cultural amnesia through all the indigenous tribes of Europe, it's still there. Mm Kind of like what you're saying, um, David, where you can still feel your heart beating. And those ancestors that you're talking about, who had the songs, who prayed to the Alps, who knew the the herbs of those areas, how did they get that knowledge? You know, they walked out there and they stood there for a long time. And so if they get if they got it, we can get it. Yeah. I've got a few stories about around the, that. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Um, so there's this kind of you know ancestral trail that we can follow back to places where our ancestors lived and were intimate with the land. Um, there's another thing too, though. I think that because I mean, in the end, nobody is from the place where even if you have been there for five thousand years, you migrated there from somewhere originally. So 
I met a guy a couple weeks ago, just a, a white guy in North Carolina. I think I might have told Pat about him. Uh, but he said his family's been in North Carolina since the 1700s. We were talking about, we were talking about that. I, I, I didn't know that such a deep accent still existed. You know, the guy, I mean, I could hardly understand what he was saying. And I'm like, this guy is actually indigenous, even though he's white. Um, where, where is this? In North Carolina. Uh, and he was full of grief, too, because of the destruction of the land that he'd seen growing up, you know, the places where he used to go fishing. And, and I mean, he had an intimate relationship through generations and generations with that land. And... His deep accent reminded me of something that I heard Orland Bishop say once. Does anyone know Orland Bishop? I do. So <laughs> that guy is an incredible. Oh my God! Like, um, and we were sitting in a group. That's when I met him, and and uh, someone was lamenting the loss of languages, the extinction of languages, and he said, "Actually, the language comes from the land itself." Mm-hmm. And the language, just like yeah. the ceremonies that Lila was talking about, the language, too, can come back. Oh. And, in fact, what I heard, so right now we have the mass media that's obliterating regional differences and stuff. Mm-hmm. But if that weren't happening, and that guy's family lived in North Carolina for another ten generations, I imagine that their language would become something, would evolve into something very similar in some, maybe not like identically, you know, but but it would evolve into something very similar to what the people living there 500 years ago were speaking, because it's in the land itself. And the the third thing I heard is someone tell me someone told me a story. Um, she was uh uh fighting to stop uh, some logging project or some mining project in a national forest or something like that, like some horrific thing, you know. And She was just praying, and then she heard the trees talking to her, and they taught her a song. And they said, if you sing this song, then uh, the mining project will, will be stopped. So she began going everywhere and singing the song, and the mining company ran into legal difficulties, and just by coincidence, the project was stopped. But she was, you know, singing that song, and some um, of the—I uh, don't remember where this was—but but one of the um, indigenous tribes, some people heard her singing that song, and they're like, "Where did you learn that song? How dare you sing that song? Who taught you that?" And she said. No one taught me that. The trees told me, told, gave me the song. And they're like, oh yeah, which trees? <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, well, it was the aspen trees. And they're like, oh, okay, well, it's fine then. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they taught her the song that those people had been singing for generations and had never taught anybody. But So now we know where those songs come from. <laughs> So much for intellectual property, you know? <laughs> Aspen can get pretty pissed off, though. You, yeah. <laughs> Gotta watch it. It's true. Quality of home. Well, and I just had a thought when you were talking, Charles, about you said, so you imagine that your friend from North Carolina, if they were there for another ten generations, they would begin to speak a language a lot like the indigenous language that was there. Mm-hmm. And... I never really thought about it before, but does it really matter whether it's the same? Right. Or, yeah. I mean, and my point here is, <laughs> it's about the relationship, mm-hmm. not about the retrieval, right. which is a huge, in my opinion, stumbling block <laughs> in indigenous uh-huh. communities right now. Uh-huh. The obsession with retrieval has been getting in the way of of the the meaning mm-hmm. and the principles 
about relationship. Mm-hmm. And so when we get, when we, uh, what I witness is when we get too concerned with the exact details of retrieving what was, Mm-hmm. then we start to have the same holy wars that everybody else does. Yeah. Oh. Right, right, right. So just an aside that maybe mm-hmm. a language would arise that would mean the same thing because it would have that it would be about having that relationship. Mm-hmm. But but I wonder if it's yeah. has to be the same. I don't think it has to I mean I don't think it's necessarily that important, but it, it whether it's the same or not, but I just feel that there there would be some recognizable essence of it. But there wouldn't have to be. And, and I, I, I think that this, you're bringing up a really important point yeah. too with this kind of, like one, we were talking about this today, I think, yeah. that, that, um, traditions are not static. You know, when you try to preserve them to retrieve, okay, how did we do it a hundred years ago in the context of a hundred years ago? Well, um, traditions are living beings, you know, ceremonies are living beings mm-hmm. and they, grow and evolve over time. And when you try to capture them, that's the same mentality as, as, you know, let's record them, let's put them in a museum, you know, let's own them. It's um, also the fundamentalist mentality. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I think something's wanting to be said here uh, about oral tradition and oral culture. And it's curious contrast with literate, written culture and today with digital culture. But, um, but bracket that for a moment because there's a poem poking up at me um, unexpectedly. <laughs> Thomas Tranströmer, uh, Swedish poet, got the Nobel Prize finally a couple of years ago. Um, and then he died. Bless his soul. And he said, tired of all who come with words, words, but no language. I went to the snow-covered island. The wild does not have words. The unwritten pages spread themselves out in all directions. I come upon the marks of roe deer's hooves in the snow. Ah, language, but no words. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> ah, travel well, Transformer. Um, <laughs> Um, Thank you. Something beautiful there about about writing too, you know that even even writing is something we were taught by the other animals, you know. And learning to read is first learning to read sign and tracks of. And so even today, as we're reading, you know, the pages and the words across the page, we're actually tracking. Uh, it's using organs that were honed by our by our hunting indigenous ancestors um tracking you know each print and then losing the line at the edge of the page and then picking it up where you know where the track begins again it's like the the hoof prints left in the snowy field um it seems and if that's true then you know even in reading um a book, and I, I love books, and I love to write, um, but somehow what holds me in the grip of a really good book is not, it's not really the author I'm tracking, but somehow the meaning, which is maybe the meeting with the other, and the other is not the author, the other is, is wild, it's the wildness, it's, it's, it's the more than human earth, and Meaning, it seems to me, is, is maybe is always meeting, and it's always the meeting with otherness, and oh, but yeah. So I'm I'm going to back up and just say oral, oral culture when we're speaking and when we are um, honoring with real humility, necessary humility, uh, indigenous traditions and indigenous cultures and by and large we're honoring cultures that um, developed and flourished for so many generations in the absence of any highly formalized writing system and and 
shocks. I mean, it's only once you're writing it down that you can begin to imagine that it doesn't breathe the tradition and that it doesn't um, um, go through its shifts informed by the quality of the light and and the wind and the water. Um, but once you write it down, there it is. It's stuck there on the page in that shape and form. And only then can you, it seems to me, get that notion of a kind of fundamentalist mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what it says, and it says just this, and we're going to be literal about it. Um, but also, it inscribes the stories into an exclusively human register, mm-hmm. because the other animals and the birds uh, can't read yeah, our right. scratches and our scripts. And, but when we speak the story, all so many of the other critters hear it mm-hmm. and are affected by it and informed by it and can inform the telling if they swoop by as we're speaking. And so, I don't know, but it does feel like the intimacy between language and the land and between particular um, um, styles of eloquence and particular places um, um, is so deep and so old, and yet it is uh, dramatically sundered by this new technique or technology or magic. Of, of the written word, and yet different forms of writing do it in different ways, and 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 you know more iconic writings of, of China are very different in the way they interfere with this, and in many ways less so than an alphabet, where I look at the letters and they just point me back to a sound made by the human mouth rather than imaging anything mm-hmm. out there in the more than human world, like lightning or rain or. Um, monkey and house and human implements, but they're mixed in in a hieroglyphic system or in an ideographic writing system with all of these other than human uh, stylized images of frog and felines, but with an alphabet. Each letter is just sound, is standing for a sound made by the human mouth, and so the letters just point me back toward my own face. And only then does human language begin to turn in on itself and begin to, you know, create this bizarre idea that language is a human property Mm. and everything else in the land begins to fall mute. And that's a big shift. Mm. So for the work that each of us in the room are engaged in, each in our own ways, I wonder if it isn't... uh, a little piece of, of the puzzle each of us is working with um, that there's the rejuvenation of oral culture is a kind of ecological imperative not that we have to stop reading or writing or stop using the internet but that we leave some space in our days for mm-hmm. for a sharing uh, of language with one another that's not written down anywhere and uh, and that happens in the more than human. Well, thank you, thank you for explaining why I'm doing a podcast. That's, that's what Joanna was asking me. Um, but I mean, that's it. it t- sorry to interrupt you, but it takes me back to you, David, because you probably don't remember this, but uh, maybe my <laughs> third or fourth interview nine and a half years ago so to speak, interview conversation was with you. And I was in the mountains in Spain hmm. and uh, we were on Skype. And you said to me, what is this about? And I said, it's about bringing the oral tradition to the internet. Hmm. And you love that. And off we went. <laughs> so this is where... <laughs> I, I loved it, and I was perhaps also slightly, um, you know, I and I and I'm aware that there's something about oral tradition um, in its richness that can't ever fully be brought into the internet because when I'm skyping with somebody, um, as as luscious as that is, 
we're not sharing the same breath, the same ruach. And, and so, um, and yet it can seem like we are. Mm-hmm. But the conversation then can still float free of place. And I'm really concerned with how do we begin to root language back in the land um, and root ourselves in in some wild new way, perhaps, or perhaps in some old way, um, back into places. Not that we have to just stay in one place, but that when I travel from here to Long Island to visit my mom, I I know that I'm traveling from one whole state of mind into an entirely different psyche there at the Hudson River Estuary that is a state of mind inhabited by all of the people who live there, but also by all the birds there, by the insects there, which is really different from the state of mind we we inhabit here. And so I'm looking for that. You know, how do we begin to... Uh, how does as somebody was saying how the world is getting smaller and smaller, and I'm wondering, <laughs> are we at a moment when also now the world can begin to get larger and larger and larger again if we begin to notice or fall in love outward with the particularities of our particular places and ways they're they're so different from one another and from each other. Maybe that could be a, a good ending. Mm-hmm. Recording, I'm feeling very tired. Oh. Even though I feel like it could go on. Oh. Oh. And here I felt we were just <laughs> getting on just get started. <laughs> <laughs> just getting going. <laughs> um, well, I want to say one last thing. It may even be a part of your recording, but it is, cause it's, again, it's just poking back up at me, and so it's not going to let me. Go without saying it, because somehow it was coming up about this the curious differences made by by a formal writing system and by the alphabet. But one thing that's been striking me a lot recently is um, that only when we start writing, or when we've gotten used to writing words down with an alphabet, um, that we can start thinking of those words as labels. Uh, that is, you know, I, I encounter tree and I, and I, and it brings forth this word tree and it has some intimate relation with that, with that, um, upright rooted being. But when I write down the word tree, I can see not that trunk branching off and knowing those invisible roots that I can't see but I can feel it but what I see now is is this word mm-hmm. visible and tree I oh so I begin to think of this visible thing as a kind of stand-in for the tree or mm-hmm. like a label mm-hmm. for a tree and I uh, and I write um, mountain and I've got a label for mountain so I start thinking of language as a set of labels for the world, or as a representational system mm-hmm. to represent the world out there, and that's so different, I, I reckon, from my um, oral ancestors, uh, for whom language could not, if they weren't writing, could not have been felt as a way of representing the world. Mm-hmm. But rather, speaking was um, it was a, a kind of born of a kind of call and response with the world and responding to the calls of things and to the wind in the willows and the splashing speech of the waves on the rocks and the, and the songs of birds. So language living as a part of the world, a living part inside the world or as a way of singing myself into relation with that tree or with that mountain or calling the mountain into relation with me is so different from using language to talk about the world or to represent it as if language is one thing and the world is something else. And that seems a big, big, a big change. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. A big one. Mm-hmm. I need to sing. I need to sing because I feel so impacted by 
mm. so resonant with this mm. richness and, mm. and, and, and juiciness and somehow, I don't quite know what, uh, a question I, I really wanted to bring up with Charles um, about um, the language and poetics and our craft, because of course each of us, our bodies being different from one another, the ways we give voice to this big wonderment is, must be different. Um, and, and and yet, I wonder about this one because you used to, you spoke today, Charles, um, and, and you know I love your work. And you spoke of uh, those who are given to uh, the way of separation, and I I stumble on that, and yet I I want to honor it, and I think I understand. I think I understand deeply what you mean, and yet for me, separation there's also something luscious about, for instance, the distance between you there and me here, that we are separated by this gulp of space or air, um, because that distance makes it possible for me to fall in love with you. Um, and it's the what I hear a great deal, and, and I guess you, you probably do too, in the movement, and among many of our brothers and sisters, is a call to sameness or a call to oneness. And I get befuddled by oneness um, because what makes me thrive so much as it makes this brother, uh, Jose, yeah. thrive, is the deliciousness of otherness, the difference between... Yep. Me and another being, or another thing, or Many that stone, or another person. And the difference is what makes possible all the, the rich, erotic <laughs> wonder of falling in love with the other, or getting into a beautiful erotic dance with the other. And flamenco lives on this, as do so many other beautiful forms. And, and, and so I, and I reckon that's not something you're trying to dissolve. Um, but I feel like um, I want to also honor distance and the difference between here and Long Island because it's, there's a separation between us. It's, we're not uh, the same, and I'm not instantly able to, to um, be over there with my mom. Um, so that's the question. Well, that's, that that's why. Stuff? That's why I like to use the word interbeing. Yeah. Rather than oneness. Hmm. Me too. And me, I was just thinking maybe maybe it's not separation so much as as alienation. And maybe it's interbeauty more than interbeing. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Although for heaven's sakes, this guy. I mean, Thich on. What a poet! I mean, yeah. Finding that word, I think interbeing is pretty no, fucking it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, and it's but it's like it's it's like an answer to almost every a- 
academic conundrum and <laughs> scholarly paper wasting people's time exactly. on the internet. <laughs> Interbeing. Um, what a poet. Have you read his book, Love Letter to the Earth? I, 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 recent, I got a hold of it um, yeah, a year ago and I, I dipped into it and it was too much. And and so I've got it by my bed, and I I, I glide into it because it's it's so close to me. It's so um, it's so um, yeah. It's oh, so I don't know where where a lot of things were coming through me, but it's same. They say, not quite sure who they is, but they say <laughs> that the reason that oneness split itself up first into two and then into the 10,000 things is exactly for the reason you say, you know, to experience, to fall in love, to experience an adoration of the other. Yes. Uh, I don't think anyone is in favor of doing away with that. Oh man, I know so many people who, who, who are, they, they are just so eager to get back to oneness and dissolve into a state of sheer uh, yeah, that gets oceanic, boring though after a while. Yes. Vanilla pudding. It gets yeah. boring though. It, do, it does get boring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not even somewhere early in this conversation, <laughs> I just had this weird, weird image of. I guess it's because I was admiring and falling in love here with other, and I was thinking all of the expressions, all of the expressions, and I was thinking all of the expressions of the one, and then I just had this, and then, and then all of everything that's going on in the world, and and my elders saying, well, we. We are going to actually, they say, we're, that they say that we are going to go through 12 worlds and we're only coming into six right now. So, and I was picturing it all, and then I was picturing it all just coming back into this, like, like in the old television screens where all of a sudden it all just goes from black into this one little point of light and then it's just like, boop. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, that was fun. <laughs> you know, that oneness. Sometimes I, I, I feel that, and uh-huh. I say, I, I've said before, and lately I've been kind of questioning it, but I, what I've been saying, you know, what, what we already know how it all ends. It, it all began <laughs> in the heart of God, and it will all return to the heart of God. And there's a lot of different ways to express that, other than G-O-D. But mm-hmm. but to me that's that's what and that's what I think. And it, and it, and the return will have been enriched by the journey. Yeah. By the it's, other. For me, for me, <laughs> like the way that I, I, mean, I, I hesitate to indulge in metaphysics actually, but when I go there, <laughs> one way I look at it is it's like the feeling that you get sometimes, I'm sure everyone here has had it, when you look into someone's eyes and there's that moment where you realize that it's the same being looking out at you from a different set of eyes. So it's it's there's oneness and there's difference at the same time. Yeah. It is the same being, but it's also very different eyes. And that, to me, like, because when you translate this into politics, you know, mm-hmm. into the criminal so-called justice system, you know, into all of our institutions. Just the idea that when I talk about separation in that context, I'm talking about the idea that you are fundamentally different from me. If if I were in the totality of your circumstances, I would do different than mm-hmm. you, probably better. Mm-hmm. Um, you are an other. You, are, you have less of a quality of selfness less of a quality of agency. And so we do that to people with different skin color, with different language, different gender, uh, not to mention animals, plants, rocks, right. water. Like just So it's that dehumanization and desubjectization that is a story. Yeah. That is... And that, when I talk about separation, that's what I'm talking about. It's a story that... But that feels so, that, and I, I honor that, I hear that, that's so important. It feels so much more profound than separation. Because there's also, oh man, I'm separated from my sweetheart today. Or I, I've been on the road 
when we last met each other, and I've been separated from my kids for a long time. And so the word also has those resonances for me, and, it's, and that ache is real. Um, but what you're talking about, um, well, for me, other doesn't quite get it. Sometimes, you, you know, I understand you, you use that word with that richness, but othering, I love the otherness. This is partly because I'm Jewish. Jews don't do oneness really well. Woody Allen said, nature and I are two. Right. Exactly. No. Half Jewish. Half Jewish. My father's half Jewish. We're all half Jewish. Or Martin Buber, you know, this story after the Holocaust a few years later. Somebody confronted him in his office and said, Martin, you know, this God thing. I mean, in this day and age, surely you, a deeply learned man, do not believe in God. And, and Buber thought and thought a moment more. He said, I, I suppose you're right. I, I, don't, I don't believe in God. But I talk to him often. <laughs> and it's that relation to the to the one is you know talking to it, dancing with it, making love with the other. Um, 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 so, but what you're speaking of um, is so profound that cutting, that deep cutting and numbing of my or or the denial of any agency whatsoever. That that thinking that there are some things in the world. That are utterly inert, yeah. utterly inanimate, utterly passive, without any vitality or spontaneity, or, um, and and because I I learn much from you, I want to find I want to hunt up a word for that that works for me. I don't know what it would be yet, but it's uh, it's much it's much more dismal and numbing than separation. <laughs> yeah, I like alienation. Dismal is a good word. <laughs> Dismal. And, 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 and can you think of any? I don't know. <laughs> deadening. I mean, it's really a deadening. I think all of the words actually. I think none of the words are sufficient. They all. Right. If you really scrutinize any of them, there's something <laughs> missing. But they all circle around it. Yeah. And <laughs> perhaps we. Uh, Get a sense for what we're talking about yeah. in the spaces between the words, yeah, and exactly. the voice beneath the words. Exactly. So we honor one another's poetics and honor and take pleasure in the fact that they're that they're different, um, or or slightly different, you know, at, at subtle edges. But I can certainly glean deeply what you're saying. Um. You've been listening to a new and ancient story with me, your host Charles Eisenstein. To engage more deeply, you can join our community on newandancientstory.net, where we have live chats, forums, meetups, and all kinds of other tools for collaboration. If you want to find out more about my work, then visit my website, charleseisenstein.net.